This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Think back to when all this started, March of 2020. We had the shutdowns, basically. We were told to stay home, flatten the curve, save lives. New analysis from Johns Hopkins University finding the lockdowns had very little impact on saving lives in both the U.S. and Europe. With the worst of Omicron seemingly behind us as cases continue to drop, many doctors are now saying it is time to start easing COVID restrictions, and that includes taking off our masks. Does the science support gradually moving on from the pandemic? We start with the early lockdowns, the negligible effects. Dr. Amesh Adalja, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, didn't work on the analysis, but it did come from a colleague there at Johns Hopkins. So lockdowns were supposed to be about flattening the curve, sparing the hospitals, and preventing deaths. Do the results of those lockdowns bear out all of that? No, I don't think that they they do. And I think that has to do with the way those policies were executed and some of the cascading negative impacts and other kind of implications that those policies had. Uh, No one, and I was never uh, a proponent of this lockdown policy, uh, no one had thought that these were going to be the best tools, these kind of blunt tools that don't differentiate between a risky activity and a non-risky activity, ones that drive a lot of behavior underground, which could be more risky, for example, or, or, or ones that have that, that are not targeted. And I think what we see is that these didn't work so well. Uh, many people didn't comply with them. And we also find that many people did a lot of the social distancing on their own, even if there wasn't a lockdown. Because if you look at cell phone mobility data, it often fell before an official lockdown was in place. So I think that these really are not the policy of choice and never have been and and shouldn't be something that anybody thinks of using as a a tool for any future pandemic. Yeah, and in hindsight, and maybe going forward, if we have to do things like this again, it's probably more about limiting gatherings or at least trying to get people to do that, right? Because we knew and we know how this spreads. It is, you know, person to person and lots of families or parties inside. But when you close beaches or parks or whatever, and then you do the quote unquote lockdown, well, that limits stuff that is safer than being cooped up in a room with with you or your friends and your family and, and giving each other a virus. Exactly. So if you, for example, can't go eat outdoors at a, at a restaurant or play basketball outside, people are going to say, why don't you just come over? And, and we'll do something indoors, which is higher risk. So it ends up making behavior paradoxically more dangerous because you have prohibited people's ability to do things in a safer manner. And one of the other aspects is that it really stunts the ability of the population to learn how to risk calculate because they're kind of being hit over the head with this abstinence-only approach when it's much more important, especially with the virus that's destined for endemicity, that people know how to navigate a world in which COVID-19 is going to be present. And I think we lost that opportunity by sticking to this abstinence-only approach for so long. And it's something that I think we really have to go back and re-examine because there are so many negative impacts on the way that the pandemic policy was handled that we have to make sure that this never is uh, something that happens again. So would the the Chinese make the argument, doctor, that, uh, well, of course, lockdowns didn't really work in the U.S. and in Europe because, as as you yourself just pointed out, uh, a lot of people really didn't take it to heart. There were all kinds of violations. I think the Chinese government would argue that, yeah, lockdowns really do work if you actually lock things down. Yeah, if that's the society that you want to live in, where people can get nailed into their house and get arrested for um, 
for, for violating that. If you want that authoritarian type of regime in place, then yes, of course, if you, if you prohibit by force social interaction, then obviously cases are going to fall and people are not going to um, have severe illness because you, you have basically forbade life as you know it to that. And I don't think that's something that should be on the table because people ha have individual rights irrespective of what the Chinese government thinks about it. And I think that's not the solution when you can do targeted types of interventions that actually work. You know, for example, the majority of our deaths were three quarters were in people above the age of 65. And a large component of those were in nursing homes. Why wasn't there better nursing home policy? That would have made a bigger dent in, in deaths if we would have actually gave nursing homes the resources to be able to take care of these patients and to do isolation and to do infection control. But instead, many states did the opposite and actually sent contagious patients to those nursing homes and basically in a powder keg environment. So there's a lot, I, I think this is a false alternative that you either have to do things with, like China does or you get no benefit. I think targeted approaches reflective of what the what what is high risk, what is low risk are important. And I think also giving people guidance to do things voluntarily if they want to. If you read the paper, they also talk about the fact that many places did things voluntarily, even if there wasn't a lockdown. So that will obviously make a lockdown look look not as not as good because people were already social distancing and, and omitting certain social activities. So I think what we want to do is have voluntary best practices that are really based on transmission risks that are there and that are not one-size-fits-all, that they're much more precision-guided than not blunt. Dr. Amesh Sadalja, senior scholar, Johns Hopkins University. An increasing number of doctors and epidemiologists from across the country say that now is the time for an easing of COVID restrictions. Over in Europe, where Omicron waves peaked in mid-January, countries are rolling back most, if not all, COVID precautions. Here in the U.S., even with infections slowing dramatically in some cases, there have still been over 2,000 people a day dying from COVID. Death rate actually continues to increase. Is it premature to start ditching things like masks? With us is Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, an epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. So uh, over in Denmark, they've transitioned from a COVID pandemic to endemic. Are we ready for that shift in thinking here? Well, I think we're definitely getting there. So we're hearing from a lot of uh, big voices in the pandemic from the East Coast, deans of school of public health, uh, CNN News, um, you know, talking heads and people here in California at UCSF that, you know, we're in a different place than where we were certainly a year ago. Uh, yesterday was the lowest number of cases reported in LA County since, you know, mid to end of December. So in more than five or six weeks, we have, you know, population immunity due to uh, vaccination or prior infection. CDC a week and a half ago came out and finally confirmed through their studies that people who recovered from infection have equal or better immunity than people who've been vaccinated. So things are much, much different. And, you know, I think we're at a place where doctors like myself are saying, well, now it's more about personal responsibility, personal choices. What can people do to protect themselves at an individual level? So do we do a route of let's come up with some guidelines for hospitalizations or whatever and then dial back? Or is it maybe the other one, the quicker one, just, hey, you know what, let's say no more masks. And then if we have to bring these back for the winter, we'll do it. Um, but a personal responsibility, personal risk gauge kind of thing and do it the quicker route. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there are people calling for uh, quicker routes. I mean, um, 
a couple of months ago was about, you know, an average of 700 hospitalizations. So we're not yet in LA County at 700 hospitalizations. We're still at a few thousand hospitalizations. So, um, but that doesn't mean, you know, we couldn't have a different um, off-ramp. Um, for a while, it was February 15th. So they were going to end indoor mask mandates on February 15th. So I think we're, we're, we are getting to a place where um, authorities are definitely feeling more comfortable about, you know, loosening institutional or population level restrictions, but still making recommendations that say, hey, well, if you're indoors, if you're in a crowded setting, and if you're at risk for severe consequences, the best thing to do is wear a mask. And also remember, there's still, you know, a proportion of people who are unvaccinated, have not been infected, those people really should get vaccinated and protect themselves. But of course, here's where it gets really murky, right? So you go to a movie theater and let's say they get rid of the policy as movie theaters currently have about being masked while you're inside, which is effective or not, depending on, on the theater and the people who happen to be there at any given time. But at least that's the policy. Effective on the size of the popcorn bucket. And the, right. How long it takes. <laughs> it takes to three hours then. But, but but that said, I mean, we do then run the risk of running into this area where the person sitting next to you says, well, OK, I no longer have to wear a mask. And so I'm not as he or she, you know, coughs and sneezes. And you're sitting next to them in a crowded theater. OK, you've got a mask on, but you're not going to feel as comfortable if they're not. Right. So, you know, it, it's going to move to this sense of what, what, what is my tolerance for, you know, personal risk. So, you know, am I a young, healthy, vaccinated person where, you know, the likelihood of having severe disease being hospitalized is very, very low. You know, I'm going to remain sitting next to this person and there's probably a bunch of other things I may be more uh, concerned about. But if I'm an older, you know, person, I'm immune compromised, and um, I'm particularly worried about uh, acquiring severe disease, I'm going to move away, or I'm going to put my mask on, or I'm going to, you know, going to avoid going to the theater that day. But um, we've also shifted a bit from focusing on the prevention of controlling the spread of infection, to recognizing while we have treatments available, we can prevent people from getting hospitalized. And Omicron taught us, um, if anything, that all our interventions are really not that potent at preventing the spread. All the restrictions, all the mask wearing, all the social distancing, but also taught us that if we can get people early treatment, um, we can prevent them from going to the hospital. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. We end today's coronavirus daily with a dubious distinction for the United States of America, the world's richest, most powerful, and most technologically advanced country, and the country that has far and away the highest COVID death rate among all other developed nations. The wave of Omicron infections cemented America's lead in COVID death rates among rich nations. Over the last month, the U.S. passed Great Britain and Belgium in death rates over the entirety of the pandemic. This is in spite of the U.S. having the earliest access and biggest supply of COVID vaccine doses. Since December 1st, when the first official Omicron case was recorded here, the share of Americans who've been killed by the virus is at least 63% higher than any of the other large wealthy nations. It's according to a New York Times analysis. Hospitalizations here also far outpaced other developed countries. Meanwhile, rates of vaccinations and boosters, they continue to lag. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.